0: Instead of thinking of masturbation as trying to get something from your cock, as trying to get an erection or trying to get an ejaculation or trying to get an orgasm, right? Or trying to get pleasure, think of it as giving to your cock, as giving to your body, as giving pleasure to your genitals, right? Like giving back I love to it. it. Yes. Um, and because
1: that'll shift the way that you start to do some of these practices that I'm about to share. I'm George Lizas, spiritual teacher, psychic healer and number one best-selling author. Growing up in a small and Christian community, I was judged and rejected for being gay and different. After a futile two-year attempt to change who I was born to be, I called myself a human abomination and almost took my own life. Fortunately, in my darkest moment I saw the light and ventured on a healing journey of love, forgiveness and spiritual awakening. Yet my dating life since hasn't always been all roses and rainbows, and my past dramas and traumas have definitely kept things spicy. Fast forward past many awkward dates and disappointing sex, I created Can't Host to challenge toxic gay stereotypes, explore the complex dynamics of gay sex and relationships, and create opportunities for healing and growth. If you're a gay guy seeking more joy, freedom and authenticity in your sex life and relationships, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Can't Host. I'm your host, George Lizos, and I am so freaking excited to share this episode with you. I recorded this episode back in June, and I was so excited to share it with you, but I couldn't because the podcast was taking a break, so finally I get to share this with you. This episode with Cam Fraser completely changed my perspective around self-pleasure. But we talk about so many more things than just self-pleasure. We talk about how to overcome shame around experiencing pleasure, especially as men, and all the narratives we have around what it means to be a man. We talk about that and ways of releasing toxic masculinity narratives and finding freedom in our sexuality. We explore how sex and masturbation practices have become conditioned The difference between self-pleasure and masturbation, two completely different things. And Cam also shares his top 5 masturbation techniques. I gotta tell you, I realized after this episode that I am very boring (laughs) when it comes to masturbation. And I definitely needed those practices to spice up my sex life. I tried a few of them during the summer and they completely shifted things for me, both with myself and with my sexual partners. And I am so excited for you to listen in. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with friends that you know will enjoy it. Make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any comments to share with me, reach out to me on Instagram at George Lizo's and tell me all about it. Let's get started. I come welcome on Can't Host Podcast. How are you?
0: I'm good, man. I'm good. I was just speaking to you before we jumped on saying that I've just put my son to bed. He's been a little... Uh ball of energy for the last couple of hours, uh, which has been fun. Uh, he keeps me on my toes. He keeps me young. Uh, so I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling energized of having spent some time with him.
1: Uh, and I'm excited. I'm excited to talk with you, man. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. I As soon as I discovered your account, I was really drawn to you talk specifically about how we can move away from goal and performance oriented sex and masturbation and towards a more exploratory pleasure-oriented self-pleasure. It has really shifted my perception of sex because I've been experimenting with this idea over the past few months that I've been doing this podcast, and it completely shifted the way that I relate to sex and the way that I relate to masturbation as well. Actually, this past weekend, I'm going to share a quick sex story that actually demonstrates this really well. I was I ended up in a threesome with two different guys And I was confronted with the two sides of me. The past me, one of the guys was all about performance, like going through the motions, performing, not paying attention, not connecting. And the other guy was the exact opposite. Like eye contact, touching in a more intimate way, and it it felt completely different. And then I started realizing, oh my God, I've been both these two guys. I've been the performance-oriented guy that we've seen porn all the time that we feel like we have to just go through the motions and get it over with as soon as possible. And the other side, which is what I'm transitioning towards right now, which is all about connection, intimacy, exploring. Before we get started with questions, I want to hear a little bit about your own story and your own journey of coming to do this work. Sure. Uh,
0: so it sounds, you know, relatively similar to yourself in terms of like exploring your expression of sexuality and transitioning from a performative-oriented approach to a pleasure-oriented approach. That's been very much my own life journey, let's say, with the way that I express my sexuality. I, as a younger man, was very concerned about my sexual performance. You know, I'm you know, as a as a heterosexual guy, I was having really shitty sex with women at the time of my life when I was like. 18, 19, 20. And the framework that I had for sex was quantity over quality or every hole is a goal, as we say here in Australia. Horrible way of thinking about sex, right? It's just like notching up as many as you can get and not really dehumanizing a little bit as well, right? Like not really treating other people as human beings, as people that have their own experiences of pleasure, but more so just treating them as like a number. In addition to that, I also was approaching sex from this point of view of like I as the guy do the sex to the woman right like I'm the doer she's the the receiver I'm the person who's like supposed to be in charge and dominant and be the pursuer and the initiator and the person who's knowledgeable and knows what they're doing and I'm the one that like is responsible for for everything, right, and um, and and sh- she is framed as like a very passive role in that that exchange, and that's like a very old kind of like sexist, misogynistic way of thinking about sex, of like men do sex to women and women just put up with it and tolerate it, right? Like it, it strips women of a lot of agency, in in my opinion, uh, and but that was my my framework for sex as well, because no one really taught me otherwise. Uh, and at the same time, I also was relying very heavily on alcohol to fuel my sexual experiences because I had a lot of anxiety. About myself as a young man, I was very insecure about like being man enough or being masculine enough for my partner or lasting long enough or my dick being big enough or whatever it was. Like I had a lot of anxiety around all these very stereotypical things that a lot of men typically have anxiety around. And the way that I coped with that was with drinking alcohol. Right. So what I would do is I just get drunk essentially because I felt much more freer to be sexual with people when I was under the influence of alcohol and the booze, right? The alcohol became a bit of a scapegoat for me because I would typically not have a very good sexual experience when I was drunk. Like I, you know, I I drink to the point where maybe I couldn't get an erection, right? I drink to the point where I got whiskey dick or brewer's droop or alcohol induced impotence, right? So I was just too inebriated. And then I could just blame the alcohol for the shitty sex that I had and use it as a scapegoat rather than dealing with any of the underlying anxiety that contributed to my approach to sex in the first place. So I could just write it off as a funny story that I could tell my friends. I was having a lot of shitty casual sex under the influence with a lot of anxiety under the surface, a lot of insecurity about who I was as a man, and a lot of concern about the performance aspect of what sex looked like. So it was like this really unhealthy mix of a bunch of things. Very serendipitously, I really injured my lower back, actually fractured my lower spine. And so part of my rehabilitation was to go to clinical Pilates, was to go to do some yoga. I was introduced to massage. I was introduced to meditation, to breath work, and to all these really beautiful healing modalities, spiritual modalities in a sense that started to really transform the way that I related to my own body. So rather than like drinking myself into intoxication, I I stopped drinking. I cut back on my drinking and then I I stopped drinking entirely. And rather than like being really tense and really tight and really constricted and stiff in my body, I started loosening up and I started relaxing a bit more. I started releasing some of that tension. I started noticing sensation in my body a bit more. I was very closed down, very emotionally like cut off from the sensations that I felt in my body and from the emotions I was experiencing. And that started to loosen a little bit and i could feel more physically feel more but also emotionally feel more Uh, and i i distinctly remember some of the classes that i went to pilates classes doing a practice on the reformer and then all of a sudden all this anger just came out of nowhere and just felt like this rage and frustration and and this like stuff that i've been holding on to that i hadn't expressed before right like because as a guy especially as a straight guy, right? You're not, a, not supposed to express any emotions. You're not supposed to have emotions. It's bad for you to have emotions. You know, and then and other times I remember like doing a yoga class and just bursting out into tears. Like all of a sudden tears just bubbled up to the surface when I was doing like a child's pose or like a, a gentle yin style practice. And at the time, as a, you know, as a young man as well, still in that, that kind of toxic headspace, my thinking was, God, I'd need to go and see a counselor. And again, not because I was like, this is going to be really helpful for me. But because I was of the, of the mind of like, I need to get rid of these emotions. I can't have emotions. I need to go see a counselor to get rid of these emotions. I reached out to the school counselor uh, at the time. And thankfully, you know, they, they knew what they were doing. And I, so I ended up doing narrative therapy with them and a psychologist. And narrative therapy, for those that don't know, is essentially just looking at all the stories that you tell yourself about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a person, sexually or otherwise, and determining Are those stories coming from external sources? Are they coming from internal sources? And are they healthy? Do they actually make you feel good? Do they serve you? Do they serve the people around you? And then just going, cool, those don't work. I'm leaving those behind and I'm writing new stories or I'm taking this with me and I'm going to create this new narrative for my life. That really helped me unpack all these things that I had been telling myself about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a sexual man, what it means to be an Australian man, what it means to be lover what it means to be a person like in in these all these contexts and and so effectively within the space of like a year let's say i had this radical transformation of not only my relationship with my body in terms of like i was breathing deeply and better down into my belly down into my diaphragm i was much more relaxed and held less tension and less constriction and contraction in my body much more in my parasympathetic nervous system but then also like talk therapy wise like I was starting to tap more into my emotions. I was I was more communicative. I started caring less about what the men in my life thought about me uh, and started acting more authentically and genuinely around them and started calling them out and their bullshit rather than just being worried about whether I'd fit in or not. Uh, and I started having better relationships with women as well because I was I was curious about it. I started asking them questions rather than just being like, this is the script that I have to follow because this is what it means to be a man. I was much more like, hey, what are you into? What turns you on? What do you get pleasure from? And started having these conversations with them because I felt much more secure in my own sexuality and masculinity. And and I was able to last longer because I was much more relaxed in my body and I was doing some deep breathing. I was getting better erections. I was drinking less alcohol. So that was of course helping. And so I just really saw like within the space of a year, this, this really beautiful transformation happen in my own life. And that sparked this passion in me, I suppose, for like, wanting to do this work with other men that's how i got into counseling myself and then i transitioned from counseling into doing some yoga and tantra and then from that i transitioned into massage and then i transitioned into coaching and and the coaching hat i feel allows me to draw on all these different modalities and life experiences and and healing practices that i have in the delivering of my my coaching services to to the men that i work with so yeah it's been a like a personal journey like the work that I do is the stuff that I wish I had learned 10 15 years ago you know the the stuff that I put out into the world the the content that I put up online is stuff that I wish people had told me when I was really struggling with my sexuality and my masculinity and I was a younger man and and had no one really to look up to so that's what I try and do today is is like really be a bit of a torchbearer for this really beautiful what i think what i think is a really beautiful positive expression of masculinity and sexuality and and is pleasure oriented and is not so stifling and is much more curious and exploratory uh, because that's what i wish someone had done for me all those years ago
1: yeah what a powerful story and there are a few things i want to touch on like based on what you just shared i want to start with the fact that our bodies store memories and conditioning and experiences and everything we go through our body stores those memories and Uh, What I found through my own journey as well, and what I, I feel you've also shared right now is that all these emotions and the conditioning was trapped. And then when you finally gave some acknowledgement to your body through yoga, through Pilates, through massage, you started to release all those trapped emotions and traumas and started healing your relationship with your own body. And as a result, with your own sexuality, have you found that as well, that the more work you've been doing, embodied work the more healing you've experienced. And in your experience with like coaching other men, have you found that when we stop just looking at like performing and start paying attention to our own bodies and connecting with our own bodies, that's when it really shifts for us sexually as well? Yeah, totally,
0: dude. Like, and, and, you know, something that I've noticed as well is that's still happening for me. You know, I've been doing this work for like 10, 15 years and I just had a son two years ago. You know, I didn't have the son. My wife gave birth, of course. But like the, the, the process of becoming a parent and all the work that I thought I had done is now like being taken a, a step deeper, right? Like a, a, a colleague of mine said that it's like putting more weight on the bar, right? Like if you're working out of the gym, it's like adding that extra weight to it. Um, and it definitely feels like that. A lot of the, the stuff that I thought I'd done, the inner child work, the healing that I'd done, the connection to my body, is being tested so much by becoming a parent. Um so it's still like I'm still doing. I don't want to give the impression that I I'm like I'm done. I've reached yeah. the 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 epitome of like the work because it's it you never reach that point, you know? But that's been my yeah, but that has been my approach with working with clients beautifully as you as you shared is like helping them firstly get rid of that resistance to tapping into their own body because they're like I said before there's like a stigma of around men and i I work you know predominantly with straight guys i should i should caveat that of like these guys like accepting and experiencing emotion right like or even just like tapping into their body like to be tuned into like what it is that arises in them when they're in certain situations like a lot of guys are just closed off to that they close themselves off to it and and their relationships with the world around them suffer because of that right and it's kind of like not only do they do that themselves but also society kind of does that as well it's there's not a lot of encouragement at least it wasn't for me it's kind of the the needle is moving slightly but there's still not a lot of encouragement for men to tap into their emotions not a lot of spaces where it's acceptable for men to have more emotions than simply anger and maybe sadness yeah and there's like a real need i think for men to be able to like somatically tap into those experiences i often ask guys like you know Firstly, I give them some vocabulary, and I'm saying like, "What do you, what do you feel?" And and maybe they, they can't really articulate it with words what it is that they feel emotionally. Um, but then when I try and take it a little bit more into the body and, and like ask a bit more of an embodied question, like, "What do you feel physically?" A lot, that stumps a lot of the guys that I work with. They they kind of don't really know how to answer that to begin with. And so a lot of the work that I do with them is yeah, like identifying sensations in their body. And you know, part of that, if I relate it to like the work around sexuality, is identifying the sensations of pleasure in their body, right? Like a lot of the associations that men have with relate, like with regards to pleasure is that it's only explicitly mm-hmm. sexual and only when you experience orgasm, like that, that's the, 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 the brief moment that they ever experience Pleasure is like at the ejaculation piece, it's like right mm-hmm. at that, that peak, that peak experience. But pleasure is, is like, can be experienced at any moment right? Like there's this beautiful spectrum of pleasure from like really subtle nuance pleasure to really intense peak experiences of pleasure. And I often find a lot of guys limit themselves to those peak experiences and that's what they focus on. And that's kind of why they're goal oriented a lot of the time is because they're trying to get to that particular experience, trying to get to the ejaculation. They're trying to get to the orgasm. They're trying to get an erection so they can get to the orgasm so they can get to the ejaculation. Like it's very goal oriented because that's their only experience of pleasure right like they they're very good at gratification a lot of guys like i i've said this before but my distinction is here a lot of guys are very good at gratification very good at sexual gratification they can scratch the itch and and you know get it done but when it comes to like deep embodied experiences of full-bodied pleasure a lot of guys aren't aren't comfortable with that or aren't familiar with it and they find a, a lot of resistance in it because they think it's like effeminate or it's not for, like real men don't experience that much pleasure. Like they just, they just go through the motions. They just jerk off and they just ejaculate. So there's like a stigma around like really embodying your pleasure and, and, and even expressing your pleasure. as well, like making noise and like um, showing that you're in your pleasure as well. There's a big reluctance for a lot of men to do that. You know, that expression of emotion also extends to their expression of pleasure. So yeah, it's a, it's a cornerstone of the work, which you obviously have already, already shared of like Really trying to ex, like firstly accept that you have emotions, be present with them, accept them, and then learn how to not only express them but to like feel them fully. And then there's an emotional regulation piece that has to come with that as well, because a lot of a lot of the time I you know I give guys permission and I give them the tools to like really tap into their emotions, and then they kind of go whoa like there's all of this stuff coming up that I've not felt before that it's like very new to me. What do I do with it all? And so there has to be a, also a piece there around like. Okay, here's some ways to regulate your emotions. Here's some ways to discharge, you know, emotions. Like a very simple one that I have employed. I don't do it anymore, but like, I'm going to speak about parenting again because it's on my mind. But you know, the first year of my son's life when I didn't have a lot of space to go and do my emotional regulation tools because we were just in the the parent bubble, I went and discharged those feelings of frustration and those feelings of fear and insecurity by just going and hitting a punching bag for 10 minutes. You know, had a punching bag set out in the backyard. I just feel like some tension and some, some anger and frustration start to bubble up to the surface. I go, honey, I got to go outside for 10 minutes and just smack this punching bag. Can you please take Fergus? Or can you please like, if he's asleep, like, I just need a bit of space and just go hit the punching bag for 10 minutes, just like physically move the body, right? Move that energy through the body. And then, and then you feel good afterwards. It feels like there's a bit of a cathartic release afterwards. Now that is a temporary discharge of emotion. It's not a regulation tool necessarily. It's more of a discharge tool, but um, in a pinch, it was working for me. So like, that's also a really important piece as well as like, once these guys tap into it, how how, how are they navigating it and managing it? And like a simple example of this as it relates to pleasure, for example, is when I get guys really tapping into their pleasure for the first time, there's oftentimes what comes up is they start ejaculating quicker. Right. And where they Mm -hmm. hadn't come before, like they hadn't been coming quickly before, you know, that just, that hadn't been an issue with them, but they've been very numbed out and not really tapped into their experiences of pleasure. When I start to like invite them to really, what turns you on, what gives you pleasure, what sensations do you enjoy? They start doing that. They start noticing, well, I'm actually, I I feel like I'm going to come. I feel like I'm I'm coming quickly now. Like there's a problem now. Like uh, again, there's stories around it coming quickly and it being about, and so oftentimes it's a bit of a hurdle for a lot of men doing this work, is that once they tap into their pleasure, they start ejaculating quite quickly. And so the, the piece that has to come after that is learning how to hold that pleasure in your body, learning how to manage your capacity for pleasure, maybe expanding your energetic container for pleasure so you can hold it for yourself, You know, getting familiar with those spaces of, of heightened states of arousal. Uh, I'm ranting now, but like th- that's a that's like yeah. a very practical piece around like once you start to tap in, then there's also has to be another piece around. It can't just stop with just tapping in. There's got to be some
1: after yeah. steps some way of controlling it and being in control of your sexual energy rather than allowing it to take over. Because you're right, when you start untangling and getting in touch with your emotions, all hell breaks loose. They all come up to the surface and you need to have the tools that you need to regulate the emotions. And the sad thing is that nobody teaches us how to emotionally regulate. Like I wish there was a class about emotional regulation at school, because that's the number one thing that we need to like get on with our lives as human beings, being able to manage our emotions, control our emotions and use them in a very productive way, both in sex as well as all different types of circumstances. I love that you talked about this goal-oriented way of ejaculating because drawing from my own experience and history, I remember that I felt really bad that it would take me so long to ejaculate in the end. And I felt guilty. I felt there was something wrong with me. And now that I've shifted my perspective about it and I'm consciously practicing semen retention, I consciously don't ejaculate because I'm like, you know what? I'm practicing this right now. I was actually with the with the guys that I was on, on last weekend. I'm like, I don't, I actually don't want to come. I just, <laughs> I'm practicing semen retention. I want to experience different kinds of pleasure. Go ahead. <laughs> so it, it was a completely mindset shift. I went from guilt to like fully empowered and owning my decision to do that and control my, my, my sexual energy, which I find is so powerful. But another thing that you mentioned that I want to talk about is how universal it is for men to act in a certain way when it comes to sex. And of course you work primarily with with heterosexual men, but I found it's universal to all men, no matter the sexuality, because there are so many male narratives in the world and we're Mm -hmm. all brought up with the same male narratives that it's men don't cry, men don't feel emotions. So we are all conditioned, that's the key word here, conditioned, to act a certain way as men, both sexually or not. In the gay community, for example, we have heterosexual narratives as well, bottoms and tops. So one is a giver, one is a receiver. There can't be both, even though many guys, when they break those boundaries, like I did this year, like you find out that you can do both and you can like go from one to the other, depending on the person. There is conditioning around, as you said in in your story earlier, around drinking to have sex or uh, performing because of porn. And in the gay community, primarily, there is a lot of uh, use of poppers right now, where you, you smell it and you just, it relaxes your muscles, which it has its functionality. It, like, it works for a certain way, but it can get addictive as well. So why do you think we're also conditioned to act a certain way when it comes to sex? What is a root cause? And how do we start healing that, untangling that, understanding that and releasing it?
0: Yeah, there's a really beautiful um, framework that I like to talk about, which is called the Act Like a Man Box, which comes from the work of an activist from Oklahoma during the 1980s called Paul Kivel. And Paul Kivel was part of the, the Oakland Men's Project. And he went into schools and he observed the way that teenage boys were being conditioned, essentially, by society. And he came up with this framework based on those observations and the trainings that he did with with these boys. And so the act like a man box is essentially this unwritten set of rules that boys and men feel like they have to follow in order to be considered a real man, right? Like you, you have to fit inside this box of what it means to be a real man. And if you do something that takes you outside of that box you deviate from those unwritten set of rules then you start to get called names right like you start to get called a pussy or a mama's boy or you know uh, any type of slur for gay men right like it's one of the reasons why a lot of gay men are, are belittled by straight men is because of this man box kind of framework and if you step outside of it you're considered less of a man and you're considered effeminate or womanly or whatever it is and so you get denigrated and and so what a lot of men do because they don't want to feel that way. They don't want to be ostracized. They don't want to feel like they're on the outside of like what it means to be a man. They'll do something in order to put themselves back in the box in order to like get back into this this narrow confine of what masculinity is defined as. And very often that looks like acting out in violence, right? It looks like hitting someone or being aggressive or putting someone else down, right? So that you then are able to like fit neatly back in the box and not be on the outside of it. Paul will talks specifically about violence and violence and power, especially, and how the roles in society for men in particular, and this is very stereotypical and, you know, you got to remember his work came from the eighties as well. So it's like very much that, that time period, but like, you know, police officers and, you know, judges and people that are like, you know, distributing law and order and like control and power were very much like roles that men were expected to do so like there's this conditioning that he saw in schools of like establishing hierarchies and like putting people down and making people conform to like a version of masculinity and and essentially exerting control over others is what we were conditioning our little boys to do so they could grow up into the roles in society that we have for men, which is about exerting control and dominance over others. And that was like his big kind of thesis, I suppose, in terms of the way that he observed like masculinity. And, and so again, the, the the concept is like the act like a man box. Because the idea is like you have to act like a man, you've got to act a certain way in order to be considered a man. And if you don't act in that particular way, you don't follow those, you know, prescriptive rules that are always fluctuating and changing, right? Then you're lesser of a man. And and you know, he did some other work on the intersections of, of race as well uh, and, and class and found that like that act like a man box operates slightly differently in the lived experiences of like black men, for example, again, within the context of America and poorer uh boys as well you know one of the examples he, he shares is like if two white boys get into a fight right then the rhetoric is typically like oh boys will be boys they'll just that you know that's just is what they do but if two black boys got into a fight what he observed was like there was much more of a there was a stronger reaction of like oh they're you know th- this is this is going to lead to criminal behavior or this is going to lead to you know this, there was there was this." Mm. um really important intersection of of race and class that he spoke about. The reason why I like that particular framework is because it speaks to like these cultural assumptions that we make about men, right? Like that men are supposed to be the ones that are dominant and in control and exerting that over others. That's like a really strong narrative that we have around masculinity, right? Like the the hegemonic idea of masculinity, right? Like the, the stereotypical way that we think about masculinity is that it should be dominant over over others and that like femininity should be subordinate to it or that like, you know, people that are lesser than or less masculine are further down on the hierarchy than the, the people that are like more masculine. So it's very much just like this one-upsmanship mentality or like this, this hierarchical way of thinking about, uh, and you see it with like the guys that talk about alpha males and beta males mm. and shit like that. Like there's like, that's one interpretation of this specific you know, uh, cultural narrative that we have around like, uh, masculinity. So I, so I think like that cultural context is also what is applied to sexuality and the way that men think about their sexuality, right. It's because they're supposed to be the dominant partner, right? Like a lot of guys, they're supposed to be the, the initiator of sex, the pursuer of sex, the person who does the sex, as I thought that that was my responsibility. Like, you know, when I was a teenager, and like that then extends itself to like what sex should look like, right? Because if you don't have sex in the right way, if you don't follow the specific scripts or the specific like unwritten set of rules around what sex looks like, if you don't last long enough, if your dick isn't big enough, I've had guys like have concerns that they share with me around like ejaculating enough, right, quantity, you know, if, if they're not <laughs> big enough or strong enough or whatever it is, like there's, they they feel lesser then, right? Because that whole hierarchical cultural context around masculinity is also embedded in their sexual experiences. And so there's this fear of not being enough. There's this fear of being outside of that man box. And like, if they do, God, this woman's going to think that I'm a pussy. This woman's going to think that I'm a beta male. This woman's going to think that I'm not masculine enough or I'm not strong enough or whatever it might be. Um, or my partner, right? it doesn't have to be a woman. I know a lot of gay guys have a very similar, you know, fear of not being enough, of not being a, you know good enough or masculine enough or manly enough. Part of me, I don't want to get too necessarily political about this as well, but like part of me thinks like, the economic system plays a part in this as well right with regards to living in a capitalist society like there's this idea of always producing you know not wasting any time and being productive and making money and making sure that you're like always achieving something and and you know being being a kind of like productive member of society and so like for a lot of guys especially since like the 70s for example where there was this deviation from productivity in the workplace and wage you know, earnings where the wages stagnated, but productivity kept on kept on increasing. So we're like working harder, we're producing more, but we're not necessarily getting paid for that, right? So like a lot of guys, again, perpetuating this idea, like I've got to work, I've got to do things, I've got to do things, but like feeling maybe disenfranchised by the fact that they're not being able to provide for their family financially as they were in the 70s, right? Like that's a big shift. And so uh, a lot of guys are feeling this, Anxiety, existential anxiety of like I'm not enough, or I'm not good enough, I'm not, you know, living up to the standards of my grandfather. I'm not living up to the standards of my father. There's like a really generational thing here happening around masculinity, I reckon, with yeah the shifting of the economy in terms of like going into to later stages of capitalism. Like economic forces play uh, an impact on like men's interpretations and perceptions around what it means to be a man as well, right? Yeah, that that's also a, a really important factor and. A lot of stuff preys upon men's insecurities, right? Like a lot of you'll see a lot of advertising that preys upon like men not feeling enough, right? Like a lot of advertising for think of any athletics advertising that's targeted towards men. If you're not a shredded, you know, mm. athletic, muscly guy, then that's what is, you know, and that's that's the ideal standard. Like if you're not that, then that's the insecurity that's being preyed upon by these advertising companies, right? It's like you've got to look. A certain way in order to be classified as this real man, right? This archetypal, stereotypical masculine, Adonis type figure. You'll see the same thing with with women as well, with regards to like advertising that's directed to them. But again, it's like these economic forces are pushing narratives around insecurity and anxiety and this this feeling of not being enough, right? Of really exploiting that particular fear.
1: It sounds like it's it's all centered around patriarchy, this system that has been running for thousands of years, and it's all about abusing masculine energy, hyper masculinity, and just vilifying feminine energy, which is all about going within, connecting with your own emotions, receiving, resting. And this patriarchal system that has been running for so many thousands of years, it's basically been expanding and affecting every single area of our lives, from politics to the economic system to social systems. And, and therefore, it's controlling the way we perceive our own selves, our bodies, and our sexuality as well. It's such a deep topic to discuss, but once you understand it and once you realize, okay, this is the system that I'm part of, then you can snap out of the system and start seeing things in a different way. Another thing that you talked about in your story that I found really interesting was communicating. That was a a huge thing for me when it comes to communicating my desires and my needs in sexual situations, asking questions, declaring like, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. And asking the other person as well, like, what are you into? Uh, Whenever I was on Grindr in the past, like the the gay app, everybody was like, hey, what are you into? And I'm like, I never knew how to answer this question. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) And then eventually, when I started connecting with my body, I'm like, okay, I like this, but I don't like that. I like this, but I don't like that. So now I know exactly how to answer this question. And it's liberated me to a greater degree when it comes to experiencing pleasure and exploring my sexuality, which kept me wondering why was it so hard for me and why is it so hard for people to communicate what they like and what they don't like in sex? Is it because it's such a vulnerable? situation or is there something deeper there? Yeah, I think vulnerability
0: is definitely a part of it, man. Like I, I love Renee Brown's definition of vulnerability, right? Yeah. That is there's uncertainty and risk taking. And you know, that's that's kind of like what talking to your partner about sex is, right? It's it's you're uncertain about what they're gonna say, right? You don't know how they're gonna receive. And there's a bit of a risk there as well. If you express something that's one of your deepest sexual fantasies, your partner could have a pretty strong reaction to that and possibly be like, no, that's, hopefully they wouldn't say that's fucked or that's weird. Like, but they, they, you know, they could, you know, and they could have a really visceral reaction and be like, no, I'm not into that. And you've just put this very intimate, integral part of yourself out there for them to possibly reject it, right? So like there is a really strong vulnerability piece around talking about sexuality because it's so inextricably linked to like who we are as human beings. Like our sexual fantasies are deeply part of our psyche, at least in my opinion, right? Like the things that we explore sexually and erotically are like, that's you, you know, like that's your core. And so if you're putting that out there and having conversations about it, it can, it can lead to like some pretty strong feelings of rejection if someone judges you for that. So I think like that, that's definitely a, a big part of it, but also like we don't really know how to have conversations around sex. Like if you like mm. all you've got to do is just look to America right now. And like the absolute floundering that they're doing with regards, to like talking about consent and like what pleasure positive education looks like. And like people just don't really know how to have open conversation about sex. It's like a little bit better in Europe, in Australia, it's not very good, but it's just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. We just don't have a lot of the language to talk about it. No one really teaches us how to talk about it, the lack of sex education, you know, contributes to that, you know, exponentially and people are, t- then people jump on the internet and there's so much misinformation on the internet about sex and pleasure. So people don't have the vernacular, right. To actually have a discussion about sex. And so, and, or even where to start as well, right. There's, I, I oftentimes, especially when I'm working with a guy who's in a relationship, like he'll have a desire. He wants to talk about sexy, like, you know, he wants to get the ball rolling. He's kind of got this initiative to kind of start these conversations, but then he's like, there's so much I want to talk about. It's like, I, it's overwhelming. I want to talk about this. I want to talk to my partner about that. Like, where do I start? There's also a lack of strategy for having conversations as well, right? Like, some very practical things that I like to share with people around communicating is like, firstly, take it out of the bedroom, take it out of like the sexual context. Have conversations about sex in non sexual settings. You know, have mm. conversations about sex when you're having a coffee in the morning with your partner, or when you're going for a walk in the park, or when you go to the beach and just hang out there. Like, have conversations about sex in what I call low stakes situations, right? Because when you're having conversations about sex in a sexual context, it, that's a high stakes situation. There might be like some anxiousness that the thing that you're about to talk about is what you have to immediately go and do uh, when you might be like not prepared necessarily to do that or your partner might not might be prepared to do that or like, you know, maybe the, the arousal is already flowing and we know, I, I like to say that it's an altered state of consciousness when we're in that arousal state, when we start to have that eroticism start to you know, enter and permeate our body, like that does put us into a different state. So we, we might uh, have different perspective or we might say different things when we're in those heightened states of arousal compared to when we're quote unquote sober or like in a non-sexual setting. So like, that's the first thing I, I always recommend is like having conversations about sex out of the bedroom. Uh, And then, like, the other really practical piece of advice that I give is like chunking them down into little bite sized conversations. Cause as I said before, I get a lot of guys tell me, like, there's so much that I want to talk to my partner about. It's overwhelming. I don't even know where to start. So I'll say to them, like, let's, let's, like, thematically, what are the things do you want to talk about? Like, do you want to talk about, you know, erection difficulties that you're having? Do you want to talk about porn? Do you want to talk about semen retention? Do you want to talk about, having multiple orgasms, do you want to talk about prostate plage? Like, where is it that you want to talk about? Let's just map out those things and then let's just chunk it down into little tiny bite-sized conversations rather than trying to have all of the conversations at once, which can definitely be overwhelming and I do not recommend. Like, let's talk about, let's talk about porn, right? And okay, what do you want to talk about with porn? You want to talk about that you like watching it? You want to talk about that you want to watch it with your partner? Like, get, let's get clear and specific on like what it is that you want to talk about and let's just have that Conversation, right? And and once that conversation, and maybe it's not just like a one-off thing. Maybe there's a couple of conversations in there, but it's just a strategy for actually having the conversations. Um, you know, something to even initiate conversations can be can be helpful as well. Like a lot of guys say, I don't know how to even start having a conversation in the first place. Yes, I've chunked it down into something that you know is important and necessary to talk about, but I don't. I'm I'm worried about bringing that up. I don't even know how to bring that up with my partner. Uh, so I I say them like, look let's find a podcast together that's specifically about the mm. topic that you want to talk about and listen to that in the car drive with your partner right so it breaks the ice with regards to like hey um and maybe if they're working with me typically their partner knows that so you know they can say like hey cam gave me this podcast to listen to maybe we should listen to it or you can say like hey i listened to this podcast and this guy said we should maybe listen to a podcast together like throw me under the bus i don't mind but like having something there that can kind of take the burden of initiation away from you is, is really helpful. I share a lot of games and activities with my clients because I think that's also really helpful for stoking communication, like taking a bit of the pressure off and also injecting a bit of playfulness and a bit of fun into it as well. Like I've got an activity that I give to pretty much all of my clients called the yes, no, maybe so game, which is essentially just like this long PDF list of sexual activities From like threesomes to group sex to like nipple play to prostate play, everything, right? Everything you can think of. And you go through this list with your partner. I say, sit down with a glass of wine or a cup of tea, do a date night with your partner where you go through this list together and you indicate, are you a yes to that activity? Are you a no to that activity? Are you a maybe if the mood was right? Or are you a fantasy? Like, oh, that's something I only want to fantasize about. I don't want to actually act on it in real life. And then you just match up. You go down with your partner on this list and you can say, oh, we're a, we're a yes to these two things or we're a yes and you're a no. Oh, that's interesting. Um, or we're both maybes to this. Like what would be the right context in those situations? And say like, for example, you really want to talk to your partner about having threesome, right? Like that's something you, you desire and something you fantasize about, you want to introduce it. But having that conversation and being like, hey, babe, we need to sit down. I want to talk to you about one of my fantasies to have a threesome. Like that's a pretty tough thing to do as I've, we've kind mm-hmm. of already established, very vulnerable thing to do. But having a threesome is on that list right in the yes no maybe so game so you could put within the context of the game a yes to that particular you know desire and partner maybe your partner maybe puts a, a maybe down but they put a yes down or they put a fantasy or whatever it is and you're like oh that's interesting like what do you what do you think about this and be like I, I actually put a yes to this I, I actually this turns me on quite a bit you know and like the the burden of initiating that conversation has been taken by the game it's kind of been alleviated by the game there's other things as well you can use is like there's card games. I use this kinky confessions card games, which is like, it's kind of like a would you rather game. It's like 52 cards. And I was like, would you rather have sex with three people at one time or three different people over the course of one night? You know, like it it, is stuff like that. And so, you know, within the context of the game, you have these conversations that are initiated by the game that you two can start to start to talk about in a bit more of a playful way. So that's also been something I've lent on heavily with my partner as, as we've like, start to explore more it's like hey let's just make it fun like it doesn't have to be serious yeah there's serious conversations and and sex at some level is serious we need to talk about consent we need to talk about boundaries but like it can still be playful it can still be like sensual it can still be sexy and fun and there's ways of doing that and i think like that is lost a lot in the conversations around sex it, it like it tends to have the serious angle um yeah for a lot of people when it doesn't necessarily have to be that
1: I love those playful games because once you start talking about it, then and you become vulnerable, you give permission to the other person to be vulnerable as well. And then once the vulnerability walls break, then you can start it opens up space for more. and then you can go deeper and you can have uh, like sexual conversations in a more serious settings as well. But I, I love the playful games because, it's, it's a playful approach to warm up to having those conversations and overcome the shame that there is around sex in general. Now, let's talk about the shame around self-pleasure, because in the female communities, there is a lot of talk, and rightfully so, and there is a lot of uh, evolution around women and pleasure and connecting with their bodies, and I feel there's a lot of shame around men and pleasure as well, but not many people talk about it. Thankfully, there's you <laughs> talking about this, but I haven't seen many people talking about self-pleasure and the shame we feel around that. Can you talk a little bit about why do we feel shame about self-pleasure?
0: Yeah, one of the uh, things that comes to mind is what I was sharing about before is like men feel like they're not allowed to experience like emotions, right and pleasure is an emotion, you know like mm. pleasure is sensation it's an emotion it's an experience that we can have and again a lot of men feel limited in the range of experiences that they're allowed to have and that the expressions that they're allowed to have so like that's part of it is there's a relationship there to emotion which is not fully established and so like anything more than just like jerking off in front of a computer screen is seen as like abnormal or weird or outside of like the acceptable man box kind of you know approach to to masturbation because it's again seen as like the domain of women right it's women that experience the pleasure it's women that have the pleasure guys just like jerk off and they get it over with and it's and it's straightforward and linear and there's other like you know and that that story is perpetuated by not only like culture but but by the media as well even by sex research like sex research for a long time has perpetuated this idea that like male sexuality is like simple and linear and straightforward and pretty basic. And that women are the ones that have complicated, expansive, multi-orgasmic experiences. And men yeah. have like this simple little five-second sticky white cross and that's it. Like that's, that's been perpetuated by our research as well. And so one of the things that I'm really passionate about is like getting more research into men's experiences of pleasure. There's been no studies on prostate orgasms i think there's been four and and none of them have been comprehensive at all but you can go online and you can speak to people like myself and we'll tell you about prostate orgasms and how amazing they are and how they don't involve an ejaculation a lot of the time and how you can have multiple ones but there's no empirical evidence to to you know to to back those claims up there's just people telling them you know telling their stories and so Research is really behind as well in terms of the way that we talk and conceptualise male sexuality at like the academic level, which is a, a disservice, I suppose, and, and just only adds to this idea that. You know, male sexuality is like really simple and, and linear and, and not very complicated. I share with men, like, I just give them practices. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'll, I'll say to them, like, I'm not against porn by any means, you know, like, and, and I, I watch porn still. And I, you know, if a male client of mine watches porn, I'll, I'll talk to him about the type of porn that he watches and try and make sure it's a bit more ethical. But like, I'll just say to him, like, stand up when you watch porn. And he'll be like, what? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And it's just like this simple idea of just standing up. Being a bit more in your body when you watch porn, maybe moving your body a little bit more, and like I don't know what it is, but there's like he kind of a lot of guys look at me in befuddlement and be like, "What are you talking? about? Why would I do that?" Like where I didn't even know I could do that. You know, there's this kind of like this disconnect from creativity, right, and curiosity around masturbation and and sex and uh, their experiences of pleasure. Like that piece is like missing for them and for for a lot of guys. And it was missing for me as well. I didn't stand up and do a bunch of other sexual exploration until somebody said to me, you can do that. And that's okay. Like it just, I don't know what it is, but there's this wall that's put up around our erotic creativity and, and, you know, our not necessarily desire. Cause I feel like there's a desire there, but just like, yeah, the permission to explore that pleasure needs to like, needs to come. I've just noticed that a lot with my male clients is like, I just say to them, like, you know, you're allowed to listen to the porn and not watch it and still jerk off, right? Like, you know, that's okay. And they kind of go, oh, that's cool. I hadn't really, i had never really thought about it. I'd never even crossed my mind to do that. And so I give a couple of suggestions like that. And then I kind of put the ball in my client's court. I kind of say like, what do you come up with? Like, give me something that you want to do. You know, like tell me about a creative idea that you have to, to masturbate or to watch porn or to like do something erotic. You know, it's, it's fun to see my clients like come up with these things and like be a bit more, be like a, like a kid, right. Like come up with a play idea, right. This kind of taps into a bit more of their curiosity and creativity. That's we've like squished that out of people in general. I feel like, you know, with like standardization and, you know, trying to cookie cutter people into little productive members of society. Like we've kind of squished creativity and curiosity out of people. Um, But I think it's definitely true for men, right? Like, especially compounded by all these conversations that male sexuality is just simple and straightforward. Um, You know, I see the same thing when I start to talk about toys, like toys for men. I often get pushback from, even from women who have the same stories about male sexuality as we men do, who say like, why do guys need to use toys? Like, shouldn't they just use their hand and just jerk off? And like, what are we doing here? You know, like the whole point is to like be more, progressive and open and curious and and playful and exciting and and have these really beautiful experiences, why are we now saying, oh, but you can't use toys? Oh, that's fucking weird if you use a flashlight. Well, that's fucking weird if you use a vibrator on your cock. Like just feels so stifling. And um, And I think a lot of guys have internalized that. I think there's a lot of internalized narratives about like, experiences of pleasure there's a lot of internalized narratives about like what it would mean if i did anything other than just jerk off in front of a computer i got it you know, again because i work with a lot of straight dudes there's a lot of internalized homophobia around exploring their ass for example yeah or just exploring their body right like oh i don't want to touch my nipples or i don't want to touch my ass that would make me gay you know like it just and, and firstly i have to say to them like dude there's nothing wrong with being gay in the first place so that doesn't like your your reasoning is unfounded to begin with but then secondly like that's not how sexuality works and you know it just yeah it's that, like and you're right like that and like the, that's a patriarchal ideal right of like you know yeah. of gayness or queerness being lesser than heterosexuality and and so that's been internalized by a lot of men so there's no switch up there that you're going to press and it's going to change your orientation it doesn't it's not how it fucking works you know so yeah so just like this compounding of the way that we see male sexuality expressed or represented in the media and then the way that like research is really perpetuated narrow narratives around you know male sexuality and then like a lot of these men they're having sex with women who also have the same narrow ideals about you know male sexuality and so like they're you're know, coming up against that so like a lot of my male clients because they're you know having sex with and in relationships with women they end up having to do educating for their female partners. They, they end up having to tell their female partners like, hey, this is actually, I can have pleasure and not ejaculate, right? Or I can be turned on and not have an erection. Like They end up having to do those pieces of education for their female partners because they don't get that education as well. And then a lot of these guys then come up against their mates who have the same stories about male sexuality, the same limiting beliefs about male sexuality, the same shame about it. And so, you know, they sometimes don't feel comfortable talking to their friends about mm. sex anymore because, like, the way that they, their friends have been talking about sex is like so performance oriented, right? And so goal oriented. And, and if they start to talk about, like, well, I had this really beautiful experience of pleasure and I felt deeply intimate and I'm like I felt it in my body and my heart and my face, their mates sometimes will. And I say this from personal experience when I started talking about sex like that, my current, fr- well, not my current friend group, my friend group at the time, the mates that I had in my life were like, bro, what are you fucking talking about? Like they were, you know, called me names, right. And called me, uh, you know, slurs for, for gay men. Right. And even though I was having sex, amazing sex with women, they were like, what are you fucking gay, bro? Like it was like a very strange, the warped logic, right. Of these guys, you know, in their cages or in their, in their boxes of their man box being like, here's a guy talking about having pleasurable, deeply intimate sex with women and their retort to that is that's, that's gay. You know, like mm. the logic there of like of, you know, pleasure and emotions and intimacy and connection being something that detracts from your masculinity. So there's a lot there, man, I, 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 I'm ranting again, but like all of that together, that milieu of stuff really like stifles, yeah, men's experiences.
1: The irony people. is that gay men think the same way about each other when it comes to that. And we shame one another. <laughs> when it comes to kinks and stuff like that and having emotions, because again, it's those, those male narratives that are just are so universal and we expect men to perform a certain way in, in, in sexual encounters. So that's why you talk about the difference between self-pleasure and masturbation, which I find is a very beautiful distinction between the two, because you're right. It's, it's very linear the way we were taught how to perceive masturbation. And it gets boring after a while. I mean, how many... Times can you watch porn in a chair and just sit there like joking off? It just it's it stops being interesting, which is what caused me to like start questioning things. I'm like, you know, what am I doing? And start practicing semen retention and exploring different ways of pleasure, and it completely shifted the game. So talking about self pleasure practice, I know you talk, uh, you teach a lot about different masturbation techniques. You ran a challenge recently on Instagram, and I was like, I didn't know like ninety nine percent of what you just shared. <laughs> Which I find it was so uh, amazing. So I was wondering if you can share like your top five masturbation techniques that most likely men wouldn't have practiced before.
0: yeah, i can I can definitely do that. The first thing I want to share, though, is like a gentle reframe around your approach to masturbation. instead of thinking of masturbation as trying to get something, from your cock as trying to get an erection or trying to get an ejaculation or trying to get an orgasm, right. Or trying to get pleasure. Think of it as giving to your cock as giving to your body, as giving pleasure to your genitals, right? Like giving back I love it. to it. Yes, um, And cause that'll shift the way that you start to do some of these practices that I'm about to share. Um, So that like, not only uh, the reason why I put that in there is because like, a lot of guys come to me like, I just want the technique, I just want the strategy, I want the, I want the move, I want the skill. And I can give you that and I can say, like, yeah, do this, do that. But that's only going to get you so far. If, if you're still swimming in the same waters, just doing a different stroke, right? Like maybe you'll get to the other side a little bit quicker, but you're still like you're still in that same pool, Right, you're, in the, you're still in that same body of water. What I want to do is like really get you out of that body of water, get you out of that pool, and put you into another pool. Right, like uh, with, with I love it. water. My first suggestion here, I've already said it to you on here, is uh, stand and move. Right, like so, like, literally, if you've been sitting down, I speak to a lot of guys about the way they masturbate. Very typically, they're sitting down or lying down. Like it's a very common position. Maybe sitting in a chair in front of their computer screen or lying down on their bed or on a couch, maybe with a phone in their hand. Again, I'm not anti-porn, so I'm not going to tell you to, to stop watching porn, but just like get up, just stand up, be in your body. And again, if you can, um, I recognize that not everyone can stand up. So maybe you can't do the standing part, but you can do the moving part. Like, start so just move your body a little bit more. Mm. The reason why I, I recommend standing and, and moving specifically is because when we sit and we're stagnant and we're stationary and we're sedentary, we don't notice a lot in our body, right? We don't notice that well, oh, I'm actually quite stiff through my back or oh, I could just open my chest up. Man, I, I went to the gym this morning. I'm feeling a little bit tight in, in my chest or oh, my neck might be able to move a little bit more. Or I could maybe move my, my hips a little bit. Like it gives you that opportunity to do that. If you were sitting down, you don't get that opportunity. And that allows you to be a bit more embodied or full body, right? It gets the body involved. It allows you to breathe deeply as well. Like breathe down into your belly or down into your abdomen, down into your balls, right? Like gives you that opportunity to do that. Um, so stand up. Just start standing up when you when you jerk off. And if you can't stand up, at least start to move your body a little bit more. That's definitely a, a recommendation. Another strategy that I like to share, and this is again porn related, is um, what we might call the pendulum. This comes from a, a gentleman by the name of Joseph Kramer, who ta- talks about healthy porn watching and body porn watching. And the pendulum is one of his signature practices, which is essentially looking at porn for five minutes, and then after five minutes pausing it, turning away from the porn and either just being with yourself or looking in a mirror, right? So Mm. you're letting the porn arouse you. You're letting it excite you, which is what porn is good at, right? It's like, that's what it's designed to do. It's designed designed to titillate and build arousal, build excitement. So let it do its thing for five minutes and then pause, turn away from the porn and be with that eroticism that's been generated by the pornography. Be with that arousal. Start to like notice it in your body. And if you're really game, do that in front of a mirror. Start to like notice your body in its state of arousal and see if you can get turned on by your own body. See if you can get turned on by your own experience of arousal, by your own touch, right? And then do that for five minutes and then turn back to the porn for another five minutes. And you you might notice if you habitually watch porn, you might notice that five minutes where you're just by yourself is difficult to do. And you might notice that your arousal drops quite significantly, right? that That's fine. That's to be expected if you've never done that before. Over time though, you'll start to notice that it's a little bit easier and it's a little bit more fulfilling and it's a little bit more pleasurable to be by yourself and just be turned on by your own experience. And it's one of the ways of like working through, you know, habituation with regards to porn use as well. Like If you're always watching porn when you jerk off, my invitation here is like, switch it up a little bit. You know, like yes. like you said, it can you can you can get bored pretty easily, right? And and it can become pretty monotonous yeah. and just go through the motion. So like here's one of the suggestions that I have is standard move and the pendulum. That's that's two two practices. Specifically here around like, you know, ways to touch your your clock, I suppose. I'm a big fan of temperature play. So I enjoy like this as a suggestion. So like go and get an ice cube out of the freezer. And you can, you can do it on your testicles. You can do it on your groin. If you're really game, you can do it like on the shaft and on the head of your cock. And notice how, you know, again, the, the underlying thing is here is like notice how it feels, right? Because that might be a really pleasurable sensation for some of the guys listening. It might be a really uncomfortable sensation for others. And so the, this isn't a one size fits all approach. It's an invitation here for you to be curious, to experiment, to like lean into some of your creativity and go, oh, that was actually not bad. But maybe if I was using, not necessarily an ice cube, but maybe if I used like a cold metal spoon, right? And I, I noticed like how that feels, or, or maybe like I could play around with some heat here. Like what could I do that's warm? If you've got like a microwave or if you've got like a, a tea light, right? Like heat up some oil and do like a little warm oil massage on your cock right like notice how that feels to have like the warmth applied to it typically that's you know on average more pleasurable for for guys at least in in my observation um but like just play around with temperature right because that's not something we often talk about when it comes no yeah stimulation it's like firmness or more friction or less friction or maybe add some lube or don't add some lube but like you can start to play around with temperature and it can give you a different sensation Uh, and our, our cock and same thing with our hands and our lips has particular nerve endings that respond a lot to temperature, uh, which is why I, I'm a big fan of, of suggesting it. Um, same with our anus as well. Our anus has specific nerve endings in there that respond to temperature. So that's also um, a really cool place to, to start playing around with. You know, if you've got a metal or a glass toy, you, know, you can put that in the freezer and then start to play with that you know, in terms of like anal play. Um, so that's one of the ways you can, or you put it in a bowl of warm water right and really warm it up i
1: use a crystal one crystal dildos are quite popular in the spiritual community so i guess that has a similar effect because it can actually freeze or get warmer great yeah
0: yeah exactly yep yeah um stainless steel is great for it um but yeah that'll work as well i'll give you two more ways of of touching your cock here's one that i really i personally really enjoy i call it infinite penetration and it's essentially you got to lube your hands up um, so yeah. all, like most of these use loop. Taking your right hand or whatever, just starting with one hand and stroking all the way down your shaft. So like starting at the top of your head, stroking all the way down your shaft, and then as that hand reaches the bottom of your shaft, you start stroking down again with the other hand. And then as that hand reaches the bottom of your shaft, you start stroking down again with the other hand. So it's like you're infinitely penetrating an orifice, right? So like this continuous like pulling down feeling this this like infinite penetrating feeling that can feel really really pleasurable for a lot of guys especially if you're like quite slow with it and you've like got some really slicked up hands and some lube because the feeling of penetration can be quite quite enjoyable uh the reverse of that is also true as well so this is a two for one you can also do infinite like withdrawal Mm. so starting at the bottom and moving up kind of like you're pulling a rope out you know of your cock essentially like you know draw withdrawing out uh, that can also be be pleasurable with some loop. And another practice here as well, not necessarily a practice, but like an invitation to explore a particular part of your body is the what's known as the coronal ridge or the corona of the penis, which you know, for people that know their Latin that means the, cr- the crown. Yeah. So the 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 crown of the penis is like the raised ridged area around the head of the penis. So. Typically, it's got quite a lot of sensitivity for guys. And and if you follow it, if you trace it all the way around to like the underside of the penis, it meets up where the frenulum is, depending on on if you've been circumcised or not. And depending on the severity of your circumcision, like there may be some scar tissue there, there may be some diminishment in sensitivity, but it still should be quite sensitive. And, And you can also pay attention to that part of your body. Here's just like a side note. If you look very closely at your corona at that raised ridged area and you if you notice any like little white spots or letting any like white nodules there then you are in the 40 percent of men that have what's called pearly penile papules and those are vestigial remnants to when we were you know the previous version of us as a species and maybe closer to our ape ancestors where um we had Uh, penile spines right so all other primates actually have penile spines which are like very very sensitive which lead to like quicker ejaculation we as a species humans as a species we don't have penile spines but it looks like we maybe did at some stage in our evolution because of these little genetic remnants um which are these little tiny nodules here and so about 40 percent of guys have them and anecdotally again we don't know this for sure because we again we haven't studied it again like i said male sexuality research is is woefully lacking but anecdotally guys that have them are typically more sensitive than guys that don't have them. So you can check, right? As you're playing, as you've lubed up your fingers and you're starting to really play around with that part of your cock, maybe I talk about polishing the crown is like one of my masturbation techniques, like get your thumbs and really start to like massage the that kind of raised ridged area around the head of your penis. And as you do that, you might like to just pay attention to it as well. Oh, do I have these little white nodules or or are they not there? Um, And that you can learn something about yourself while you're at it. So that's the last little practice that I'll give you.
1: I am so boring. Like, this is what I've realized. (laughs) After learning all this, because I'm just like just stroking up and down, up and down, and it gets boring. So I, I'm thank you so much for sharing these. I'm definitely going to put them to use, and I'm excited to learn more from from your content as well. You've been a wealth of information. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Cam. And I know you have a course called Outperform a Porn Star. Can you please share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the course, uh, the name of the course is a little bit tongue in cheek
0: uh, because I've obviously talked about how performing and being goal oriented is not great uh, and how pleasure and being pleasure oriented is much more conducive for better sex. The whole idea of the course and the the whole first week of the course really is unpacking that idea of what it means to perform sexually. And, you know, if we were having Really deeply pleasurable, intimate, multi orgasmic, full bodied, satisfying sex with ourselves and with our partner, you'd be outperforming any porn stuff. You know, like you'd be way ahead of any sex that you see on screen, right? If you were actually having genuine, authentic pleasure, both alone and with a partner. So I, I kind of try to spin this idea of performance on its head and subvert it by, I, I share a lot of quotes from porn stars uh, in you know, the first week of the course. We talk about how the sex that they have on screen is actually not very good and they actually don't mm. really enjoy it. It's, it's a job and they're just like in their head and they're one of the guys talks about like doing mental maths in his head so that he can last longer. So he's like, just checked out. Some other the guys talks about, in you know, projecting himself into like a different environment that is non erotic so that he can just like get through the scene. Like, it's just like super disembodied, not connected, not intimate, not pleasurable sex. So really trying to like, you know, take that idea of performance and and unpack it and, and turn it on its head and subvert it. Uh, and then the rest of the program is um, kind of follows a bit of a structure of uh, the first couple of weeks being preparation. So the first two weeks is preparation. so like preparing yourself to do the training. So by preparation, I mean like doing your stretching and doing your breathing and like just getting prepped to do some training. And the training then is like, okay, now I'm doing my sexual practices. Now I'm going to like be in- Heightened state of arousal, like, um, you know, almost like a sport analogy here. Like, um, I'm doing some stretching, I'm limbering up, I'm warming up, then I'm going to go train, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to train for this, this game that's coming up. And then for the last two weeks of the course is all these game day exercises. So, what do you do when it's game time? You're there with another person, with your partner, you know, you want to rely on your training, you want to rely on like all the stuff that you've been practicing, but you also want to be in the moments, right? You want to communicate with your partner in the moment, you want to be present with them. So how can I rely on all the stuff that I've learned, but then also be here with my partner and be present with them. So I give a lot of practical advice around like how to navigate that space and how to like have conversations, how to communicate with your partner, let them know that you are choosing not to ejaculate, for example, how to have that conversation with your partner. So it's like this chronological sequential kind of progressive course. And yeah, it's got some cool content in there that I'm really proud of. Yeah, so guys are welcome to check that out. Like you get lifetime access to the material. Uh, And it's, um, it's all self-paced as well. So you can access it whenever you like. Uh, And it's, yeah, it's been really, really fun actually to see the guys go through it. And there's like a little Facebook group and the guys jump in there and build a bit of a community around, you know, healthy conversations around sex, right? Pleasure positive Mm. conversations around sex. That's like another part of my mission, I suppose, is to change the way that men talk about sex with each other. Uh, So that's, that's another part of the course.
1: Amazing. And I'll include all the links in the show notes below. Can you share a little bit about where can people get in touch with you, your social media and website? Sure.
0: Yeah. My social media is um, on all social media platforms, actually at the Cam Fraser. That's um, C-A-M-F-R-A-S-E-R. And my website is cam-fraser.com. And I've got like my own podcast and I've got a mailing list and I've got a blog and all that other cool stuff. So yeah, I try to put as much educational material out into the world for free as possible. So my guarantee is that if you jump onto my website or my social media, that you'll learn something new.
1: There is a lot indeed. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, camp. No, thanks for having me, mate. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any insights or a story to share, message me on Instagram at georgelizos and tell me all about it. I would love to hear from you.